there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Is crypto perfect? Nope. But neither was email when it was invented in 1972. And yet today, we send 347 billion emails every single day. Crypto is no different. It's new, but like email, it's also revolutionary. With Kraken, it's easy to start your crypto journey with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures Inc. PDI DBA Kraken. Visit PDI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mr. Garrison, do we have any updates on selling the shares in U.S. Steel? Selling? No, no. Johnson, come on. Walk with me. Fix that tie, too. Uh, Yes, sir. We're selling Bethlehem Steel. That one Schwab's running bastard. Charles Schwab? The same. I thought he was running U.S. Steel. He was, 17 years ago. Sorry, sir. My mistake. This isn't confession, Johnson. It's Wall Street. Don't be sorry. Just be better. Yes, sir. Sir, what... On a sunny fall day in 1920, a horse-drawn wagon filled with 100 pounds of dynamite and 500 pounds of heavy metals parked in New York City it was set to explode on a timed detonator. And at high noon on September 16, 1920, an explosion went off at 23 Wall Street. 38 people and one horse were killed in the blast, ripped through by airborne metal. Hundreds more suffered injuries. The target was the office of J.P. Morgan and Company. The victims were low-level bankers, runners and secretaries, certainly not movers and shakers. J.P. Morgan Banking was a titan of finance and by the time of the First World War had grown to become the most influential U.S. bank. But despite the bank's vast wealth and power and years of investigations by the government, one of the deadliest terrorist attacks on American soil is still unsolved. Because the attack was so broadly targeted, we can conclude the target was not anyone specific in the building. It must have been the building itself or perhaps the legacy of the name on the side of the bank. Right. Though the building's structure ultimately remained intact, J.P. Morgan's storefront sustained $2 million in damages. If we adjust for inflation, that would be almost $24 million today. This falls squarely under terrorism, a mass attack whose purpose is to sow confusion and fear. Some of the most notable terrorist attacks, such as the IRA bombings and the World Trade Center plane crashes, aimed to undermine a government and make a population fearful. The Wall Street bombing was another stop on this parade of fear. A terror attack is a particularly perplexing crime to combat because it is so unfocused. You can pinpoint the group, but can never squash the ideal. And once people are afraid to do mundane things, like go to a bank, you control all the pieces on the board. And the country as you know it is not the same anymore, even if it's only a gradual erosion. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. 
And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. You're listening to our episode on the Wall Street bombing. If you like the show, we would immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. September 16th, 1920 started as any other day would. It was just past noon and busy Wall Street workers milled about, eating and gossiping, the way all of us do on our well-earned lunch breaks, until the bomb went off. Next stop is Broadway and Wall Street, coming up in a few blocks. Passengers on a Broadway trolley two blocks away were hurled off the tracks by the shock of the explosion and hid in a nearby churchyard. One person flung into the air was stockbroker Joseph P. Kennedy, who'd fathered former president John F. Kennedy. And with those kinds of effects happening two blocks away, you can only imagine the brutal carnage at the center of the blast. Ah. Help! Someone, please, I, I can't move. Sir? Sir, what's wrong? My leg, it, it's stuck under this chunk of rubble. I'll get you out of there. It won't move. It won't move. Oh, God. My wife, Dolores, tell her I love her. She lives hey, at- no talking that way. We're getting out of this. Now, just- Oh, my. Look out! Detached body parts and even horse parts flew through the air, landing in destroyed Model Ts. Shrapnel left hand-sized marks in the front walls. Thirty people were immediately killed, and eight more died later from injuries that were sustained. Among those killed was the chief clerk of J.P. Morgan, William Joyce. He was unlucky enough to be sitting near the building's front windows when they shattered. Others were injured by effects of the blast. Shrapnel from the streets, shards of glass falling from the broken windows, pillars of fire, smoky air... Bodies lay on the steps leading up to J.P. Morgan's bank. They were charred and mutilated, some with their clothing half burnt off. The stock traders inside the building immediately suspended operation when the bomb went off, and the people who survived the blast outside immediately jumped into action. If you can walk, move to the side. Give me your coats, uh, your scarves. We need bandages. Good Samaritans administered first aid and transported the injured to hospitals. Get away from the fire. Come away. Watch out for the bricks. As often happens after horrifying acts of terror, the local community banded together. About 2,000 policemen and nurses joined the stockbrokers in helping the wounded. Later that afternoon, thousands of New Yorkers came to Wall Street and joined in patriotic songs like the Star Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful. While the people of New York helped each other, the police began a desperate search. Hello? Is this Lotus Fireworks? Yeah. And did you make a delivery? No. Nothing was scheduled for the 16th. And you're certain these weren't one of yours? I already told you, no. Why would I send my fireworks to the financial district? Who would even buy them? You shouldn't be calling me. You should be knocking on every door on Mulberry. You think the Italians aren't sticking together? You're gonna round up those communists in the village, yeah? I don't like them Russians. It doesn't sit right. After the bank bombing, the police quickly reached out to local fireworks and munitions factories to determine if it was an accident. Some witnesses saw DNT printed on the wagon before it blew up, 
but others were called dynamite and DuPont. They couldn't reach a consensus on the color of the gas, so had to explore every avenue to discover what exactly had blown up. It couldn't have been intentional. You think? Bunch of people eating lunch. No reason to hurt them. They all say they weren't out for deliveries. Keep asking around. Someone's embarrassed, afraid they'll get in trouble. The police were puzzled, not exactly sure how to handle an attack of this nature. Remember, this was 1920. Terrorism obviously had existed through the ages, but it was not on the forefront of authorities' minds immediately after the event. Just 10 years before the Wall Street bombing, the Los Angeles Times building was also bombed. 21 employees were killed after dynamite charges exploded and a raging fire spread throughout the building. It was called the crime of the century. But with that title comes the expectation that it won't be a common occurrence. Law enforcement wasn't expecting another terrorist attack, let alone an even more devastating one just a decade later. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now back to the story. What are you doing? Spraying down the mess. Who said you could do this? Board of Governors. If you don't like it, take it up with them. Because it wasn't immediately declared terrorism, the New York Stock Exchange Board of Governors voted to reopen for business the day after the attack. A cleaning crew sprayed down the businesses overnight to prepare for businessmen returning to work, destroying valuable evidence. You'd think that they'd have a little respect for the victims. You'd think, but unfortunately, it was a different time. Little is known about those who perished in the bombing, but business had to go on. That puts a bad taste in my mouth. Though bombing is inexcusable, I can see why people dislike J.P. Morgan and everything its Wall Street building stood for. One thing they stood for, money. We've heard that money is the root of all evil. Money may very well have been the root of this domestic terror attack as well. A huge part of America's economy was built on the backs of trade and war. And from the beginning, the line between those profiting and those scraping by was clearly drawn. J.P. Morgan was one of the profiteers. During the Civil War, Morgan engaged in war profiteering by providing loans to Simon Stevens, a man who bought surplus weapons from the Union Army and then later sold them back to the Army at nearly seven times what he initially paid. Stevens took the fall publicly when it came out in 1861. But 50 years later, J.P. Morgan's facilitation of the deal came to light. And so J.P. Morgan came to symbolize everything wrong with capitalism, using other suffering for personal gain, making a profit off the weak. He continued to be loathed and over the years became almost a mythical boogeyman. Muckraker Lincoln Steffens called him the boss of bosses. J.P. Morgan founded U.S. Steel and sat on the boards for International Harvester, General Electric, the largest corporations. He was the perfect symbol for big business. And he remained mired in controversy. The Panic of 1907 came close to bringing the nation to the devastating economic depression it faced two decades later. In 1907, stock market manipulation led to an incredibly dangerous, nearly cataclysmic Wall Street run. J.P. Morgan actually wielded his bank's immense financial power to avert the crisis, but it still raised anger and questions from many. There was no federal bank reserve at the time. It was created by an act of Congress in 1913. J.P. Morgan's manipulation saved the economy, but also proved he wielded more influence than even the president. Was one man really powerful enough to save or ruin the economy? 
Was he more powerful even than the federal government? That kind of power and scandal breeds hate. J.P. Morgan and his bank had surely gathered the ire of many. He had a knack for freeing himself from the downfall of deals while others, such as Simon Stevens, took the fall. With enemies galore who saw him as a far too powerful threat, either to themselves as individuals or to the country as a whole, it should come as no surprise that J.P. Morgan Bank was targeted when those resentments finally bubbled over in 1920. However, the damage from the Wall Street bombing didn't affect Morgan because J.P. Morgan had died in 1913. The bomber, or bombers, could only attack his legacy and the people who kept it alive. But it wasn't the first time his legacy was attacked. J.P. Morgan Jr. carried on his father's name by profiteering off of World War I. Just five years earlier, in 1915, Eric Munter bombed the reception room of an empty building and then showed up at J.P. Morgan's home, shooting Morgan twice before he was apprehended. Luckily, J.P. Morgan Jr. survived the attack. Could Eric Munter have bombed the J.P. Morgan building on Wall Street? No, Munter killed himself in prison in 1915. But it illustrates the point that there's a precedence for attacking titans of industry. That's true. There had also recently been attacks on both Russell Sage, an extraordinarily wealthy financier and railroad executive, and Henry Frick, Andrew Carnegie's partner in the Carnegie Steel Company. Rich men had made a lot of regular people jealous and angry, and some of those regular people were ready to lash out. Mm, right. Now, even though he'd been burned by J.P. Morgan, Simon Stevens couldn't have attacked the building because he died in 1894. But do you think his anger passed on to the next generation? Well, his name was tarnished, while Morgan got away scot-free. The Stevens family had more than ample cause to hate the man. It's not impossible. If anyone wanted to go after Morgan specifically, the children of Simon Stevens had the most motive. But would they resort to such drastic measures? I'm thinking it's not very likely. Even if they did, it was very poorly planned. J.P. Morgan Jr. was in Europe when the bomb went off. J.P. Morgan's grandson, Junius, was among the injured but survived the attack that killed dozens of people with no personal relationship to J.P. Morgan. Hmm. We need to look at some theories that are a little less personal. Ones involving people who were A, alive, and B, able to construct a bomb. Fair point. Within two days of the investigation, the police were approached by citizens who'd received very specific warnings. Keep away from Wall Street until after the 16th. They have 60,000 pounds of explosives and are going to blow it up. We are going to blow up Wall Street on the 15th. We've got them where we want them. Keep away from Wall Street. There never was a road that didn't have a turn. The warnings all came from the same man, Edwin Fisher. A tennis-playing lawyer, Fisher expressed grave concern to his friends in New York City. He sent some of them postcards and even shared his ominous prediction with strangers on the train. Most recently, Fisher worked for the French Mission, but left for vacation on August 1st. He never returned to work and had been terminated in absentia. The police tracked down Fisher in Hamilton, Canada, where he was confirmed to have been during the bombing. His alibi was solid, but his knowledge gave District Attorney Swan and Assistant District Attorney Talley reason to question Fisher for hours, trying to discover if he was the mastermind behind the attack, or knew who was. Back to the question at hand, sir. Why Wall Street? How should I know? As I said, I only wanted people to save themselves. More will happen in the near future. 
Unseen powers have communicated that to me. Uh, Mr. Fisher, sir, who did the powers tell you is responsible for these coming bombings? It hardly matters. Worse is to come. England will try to saddle upon France all the allied indebtedness of the United States. These countries will go to war in three months. And who told you this? It was a premonition. I learned about the war just as I knew when the bombing would occur. I see. How did you know when the bombing would occur? I saw a ten of hearts on the sidewalk. Being a light card, it indicated to me that the explosion would be at ten o'clock in the forenoon. Later, I saw a ten of spades. That indicated ten o'clock at night. By comparing them and calculating from Greenwich Standard Time, I fixed the time of the explosion at noon. Mr. Fisher, who told you to avoid Wall Street in September? It came out of the air, from God. <laughs> if you can get information that way, why can't you find out who committed this crime? Oh, I can't do that. You can't force a hunch. That will take time. It will have to come to me. Pardon, it's warm in here. Is that a second suit jacket? Oh, yes. It's for protection from the heat in the summertime. I always wear three suits of clothes. A business suit, a second suit, and tennis clothes. That way, should I be challenged to a match, all I must do is remove the first two suits. Excuse us, Mr. Fisher. Mr. Tally, outside. <clears throat> Tally, he's a loony. Loonies can build bombs. Uh, he doesn't know anything. Maybe he's playing coy. It's been hours. He's a harmless, likable chap, but Mr. Fisher is not of sound mind. I've elected to process a motion that this man is mentally irresponsible and should be committed to a sanitarium. I have a few more questions for him. Only if you ask him while wearing three suits of clothes. I'll defer to you. DA Swan and Assistant DA Tally concluded Fisher was mentally ill. Discovering that his own sister had attempted to get Mr. Fisher committed to a sanitarium the week before the bombing corroborated that theory. Those eerie predictions were just a coincidence. Fisher was committed to the sanitarium and the police committed to other leads. Notably, communists and anarchists. Before the bombing rocked Wall Street, there was already a festering underbelly of resentment brewing in New York. To understand the powder keg of 1920, You'll need to wander back with us a few years to 1917, the October Revolution. More commonly known as the Bolshevik Revolution. October 23, 1917, a rebel group known as the Bolsheviks, led by Leon Trotsky, voted among their central committee to take up arms against the Russian government, saying, quote, An armed uprising is inevitable, and the time for it is fully ripe. The measure passed handily, and the Bolsheviks began planning their attacks. Their goal was to overrun Russia's then-capital city, Petrograd, now known as St. Petersburg. They aimed to overthrow the Tsarist government and organize a representational government in Russia. The Bolsheviks strategically attacked Petrograd and were able to overtake the Winter Palace in the center of the city. Tsar Nicholas II, overcome with defeat, abdicated his throne that march. The Romanovs thought they were safe once Nicholas stepped down, but the royal family, including Alexei, heir to the throne, were gunned down by a Bolshevik firing squad in their safe house. With the royal family eliminated, Russia became a communist nation, and this emboldened American communists a small but volatile group. 
Though a quick overview of Russian political coups may not seem like much of a factor in an American terrorist attack, communism had been entrenched in American counterculture since 1919. Take a pamphlet. Pamphlet's here. Originally a faction of the Socialist Labor Party, the American Communist Party split into its own entity after the October Revolution. Take a pamphlet, sir. We need workers like you fighting with us. Ah! Hey! Thanks a lot! But as anyone with a cursory knowledge of the Cold War knows, communism has always been a contentious topic in the United States. As a refresher, the tenets of communism, as defined by its creator, Karl Marx, are twofold an overthrow of social classes for communally owned property and universal wages. Even early on, the Communist Party mainly operated underground for safety. The U.S. Department of Justice began deporting foreign-born agitators after the Sedition Act of 1918. Scatter! They're coming! Go! Go! Duck out the back! Freeze! Hands up! Papers out! Stay where you are! Thousands of party members were deported over time, but the movement survived underground. Why Wall Street, and most especially the too-big-to-fail J.P. Morgan Bank, would be targeted with a bomb should be obvious when viewed through the lens of communist sentiment. You can't get more capitalist than Wall Street. It could have been that the communists' attempt to strike back at the systems they felt oppressed them, trying to bring it down from within. The only issue? The police could not detect a ringleader. We need to make a statement. We can hold a rally. So they can beat us? So the people will hear us. Shoot the mayor. You heard me. Shoot Highland. That will make a statement. He was a laborer. It, it won't look good. He's in Hearst's pocket. We'd be doing the city a favor. The Communist Party did attempt a series of assassinations on public figures, which did not endear them to the authorities. It's the banks that are holding us hostage, choosing who to loan to and then holding them by the throat until they die. If the banks fail... If the banks fail, the people will finally flourish. How would we do it? We would need something big. Catch the people's attention. A fire. We could take over the building. A bomb. It would bring the building down. That could work. We want the people to join us, not fear us. Well, nearby, then. People will still die. And more will rally to our cause. If communists were responsible for the bomb, they were pitting their meager faction of men against the might of an angry Bureau of Investigations and masses of angry New Yorkers. Get your post, two cents. Wall Street bombing is an act of war. Get your copy. Two cents. The Washington Post denounced the bombing, and local opinion of the perpetrators was also scathing. New Yorkers wanted the guilty men caught and charged, and they weren't too shy to let the Bureau of Investigations know. J. Edgar Hoover came into his own during the bombing investigation, and his increasing power helped propel the formation of the FBI years later. I need more men. You're not using the men you have effectively. You think I'm giving you more? Where do you live, sir? What? Where do you live? I live in a nice neighborhood. I like my neighbors. And they tell me every day they want these men found and they want them hanged. They've beaten us and I won't allow it. Foreigners, Italians, Russians, I don't care where they're from. I want them out. I want names. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now back to the story. The public put increasing pressure on the Bureau to find the perpetrators, so they expanded their funding and influence. The General Intelligence Division in particular expanded, and its leader gained powerful footholds. Hands up! Everyone! Get your hands up! 
Move! Move! As with all domestic terror attacks, calls for security soon grew far beyond a citywide search. We're flushing them like rats, but they just keep creeping back in. What can be done? We need to monitor radical elements. I thought we were. Secret police. Special police. If they don't know we're coming, they won't know to run. As history can attest, secret police do not tend to uphold civil liberties. Constitutional protections apply to non-citizens when they are on American soil, but the New York police force was desperate to ferret out any radicals they could find. The police did manage to uncover a major piece of evidence just one day after the bombing. You have the flyers? Yes, yes, in the back. On September 17th, the Bureau revealed that flyers had been found in a local post office just outside Wall Street. They were printed with red ink. Because the time to catch the public's attention is not the time to be subtle. They read... Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you. The pamphlets were signed, American Anarchist Fighters. At the time, anyone with a different ideology from American capitalism was lumped together into one group, anti-Americans. Communists, anarchists. Their differences were negligible to investigators at the time. But for our investigation, the differences are worth a look. So first, a quick crash course in anarchism in case you forgot from your edgy middle school years. Storm the jails. Free the unjustly detained. They sack the Bastille. Anarchism is a political philosophy that does not believe in a federal government. The goal is to achieve a stateless society where communities are self-governed and subject to no overarching laws or conducts. There are many forms and subsets of anarchism, but some of America's most active anarchists in the early 1900s were the Gallianist anarchists, and by active, we mean dangerous. Class traitors. Men who would climb over the bodies of their fellow man to scrape a few more nickels together. I know we abhor violence. I abhor violence. But it is a necessary evil. For what violent system may be undone by anything less than violence? Luigi Galliani was an Italian anarchist who immigrated to America in 1901 at age 40. He settled in New York and soon made a name for himself among the simmering anarchists underground in the city. He was a passionate speaker who did not shy away from violent rhetoric. Prisons are slavery, and the wardens slave masters. Jails cannot be suffered any longer. Tear them down! Cut down any slave master who would stand in your way! He called for a complete overthrowing of any capitalistic system in the U.S., and like many terrorists, he believed traditional methods would not get the job done. Galliani was the editor of anarchist magazine La Question Sociale which translates to the social question. He considered himself a revolutionary, and his band of followers followed that lead. You heard Galliani speak, and you were ready to shoot the first policeman you saw. That was a direct quote from Carlo Buda, a follower of Gallianist anarchism and brother of Mario Buda. Mario Buda would become one of the most infamous anarchists in America, but managed to evade the NYPD. Galliani was not so lucky. The Sedition Act of 1918 landed Galliani on the federal government's radar. After numerous trials and prison sentences for his activities, he was finally deported back to Italy in 1919. With Galliani out of the picture as America's most violent Italian anarchist, two followers named Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti soon took the mantle. 
The two men disdained all capitalistic systems, but managed to keep a low profile until a fatal robbery of a shoe factory in April 1920. Hey! Hey! Stop! Get the money! Get the money! Two employees transporting the factory's strong box were robbed and shot to death. The money was stolen. Robberies, unfortunately, happen all the time, especially in a major city like New York. But it was a case of poor friends in low places that caught the two men in the Bureau's sights. Papers, please. We're just heading home. Papers. Sacco and Vanzetti were friends with Mario Buda, the anarchist we mentioned before. He was a person of interest in the Wall Street bombing, and so by association, so were they. Do you have any guns on you? No. We don't own any. Really? Then what are these? The men were found with anarchist literature on their person, along with loaded guns. They had no alibis for the night of the murders, and they were swiftly arrested. They were quickly railroaded into a series of trials and were found guilty. Both men pleaded their innocence throughout the ordeal. They were jailed and sentenced to death. No Their incarceration sparked a series of protests and riots. Sacco and Vanzetti became martyrs for the anarchy cause. If they will not release them voluntarily, we will make them. Their friend Mario Buda doubled down on his Galeonist ideologies. There's no hard evidence linking him to the Wall Street bombing, nothing damning pinning him to the time and the place. But his ideology and explosive tactics led to theories that Mario Buda carried out the bombing. Bundle the dynamite. How many sticks? Try three. We'll make more. He was an accomplished munitions expert and often constructed his group's bombs for their attacks. But for all his ability with dynamite, it was his signature shrapnel that led people to believe he was the mastermind behind the Wall Street bomb. The bomb was weighted with hundreds of pounds of metal and cast iron. The blast itself damaged the bank, but the flying metal caused the bulk of the destruction. That, it turns out, was Buddha's signature. That should be it. Make sure it surrounds the dynamite. It does. Check it again. Buddha was laying low in New York after Sacco and Vanzetti's arrests, so his involvement in the plot was not immediately apparent. Next. Yes, I'd like to apply for a passport. Hmm. We can help you. After the bombing, Buddha left New York and quietly applied for a new passport at the Italian vice consulate. He fled to Naples, Italy, and never returned to America. Thirty-five years after the bombing, his nephew, Frank Maffi, gave statements confirming his uncle admitted to being part of the bombings. Get ready to run. The timer is set. Go! Go! Gallianists continued their bombing campaign for 12 years after Galliani's deportation. The attacks occurred throughout the United States, New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, D.C. Nearly all major cities were attacked. I need you over here. This site's uncontrollable. The bombings were smaller, but kept the police and Federal Bureau of Investigation on their toes. Buddha was out of America, but his fingerprints were still all over the attacks. God, but it's been a long day. Why were you sitting outside for so long? What? Your car pulled up 10 minutes ago. Ah! Get down! The presiding judge over the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, Webster Thayer, was attacked in his home in 1932. 
The perpetrators planted bombs outside. The blasts damaged his house, but they didn't harm anyone in his family. This attack would ultimately ring in the beginning of the end for Galleonist anarchists. Their failure to kill the man who condemned their martyrs ended their campaign. All of their efforts had proved fruitless. The march of capitalism continued on, and their bombings only led to anarchists being further villainized rather than gaining converts. Though their campaign of bombings ended, perhaps the U.S. felt equally fruitless in their pursuit of the Wall Street bombing culprit. Anarchists was too nebulous a label to give the public, and though times were different, they weren't unrecognizable. You couldn't charge an anarchist for a bombing with no evidence beyond their political affiliations. The Sedition Act of 1918 was repealed in December of 1920, and the police were no closer to smoking out the culprits. This meant that the police had about two months to use the powers granted by the Sedition Act to investigate the bombing. The investigation of the anarchists and their involvement completely faded. J.P. Morgan rebuilt, though notably, they elected to leave the pockmarks from the shrapnel hitting the face of the building intact as a sort of memorial. Wall Street went on to a very lucrative decade before the Black Tuesday crash of 1929. In many ways, the two events were bookends for a tumultuous economic time. Communists and anarchists were bent on bringing down capitalist structures. Those very structures ended up crumbling the American way of life until World War II's industry boom jump-started our economy once more. They can arrest us all if they like. We won't stop! We can argue that the anarchist and communist movement had its heyday in America at the turn of the century. According to studies led by psychologist Tom Pischinski, PhD, people who are reminded of their mortality are more likely to cling to a group identity, such as a communist or anarchist group. In the wake of World War I and the Spanish influenza, people were seeing myriad reminders of mortality, bolstering interest in identity groups. Both communism and anarchism obviously lived on, most notably in the counterculture of the 1960s. However, their chance for prominent political power passed in the early 1920s. As the attacks tapered off, so did the focus on anarchism. The FBI doubled down on its attacks against communism in the following decades, but abandoned its hunt for the bombing suspects. But perhaps the answer was under the Bureau's nose right from the beginning. After the Hall-Carbine affair, Simon Stevens' name was besmirched permanently harming his once powerful relationship with the Republican Party. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan only grew more and more powerful and wealthy. It's possible someone in Stevens' family felt Simon deserved a posthumous revenge. But attacking the bank to avenge a deceased family member's legacy seems far-fetched, even for the notorious J.P. Morgan. No culprit was ever brought to justice and will never know the true mastermind behind the cast-iron bomb. Is it possible the perpetrators were inspired by the Los Angeles Times bombing from a decade ago? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because the McNamara brothers, who carried out that attack, became central figures in the labor movement, and even folk heroes to some. We cannot fail! And if the people won't listen? They will. They know we're right, even if they won't admit it. Did the people behind the Wall Street bombing hope to copy that same idea of the little guy fighting back against very powerful establishments? 
Ari Kuglansky, co-director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, recently conducted research on Islamic terrorism and found that a collectivist mentality may explain terrorism. And what's more collectivist than communism? Mario Buda's associates confirmed he was involved in the plot, but no hard evidence could ever be linked to him. No evidence meant no extradition from Italy, which meant no trial. However, even if the authorities had been able to pin the crime on Buddha, the man loading the cart full of dynamite is immaterial when he's just part of a regime. Ideologies are bigger than one man, and political messages are even larger. Communists certainly had cause to attack emboldened by the successful revolution in Russia. Our brothers accomplished the impossible halfway across the world. The only thing stopping us is ourselves. The pamphlets are a damning piece of the puzzle which cannot be ignored. Free them! Your prisons are not just! The arrest and eventual executions of Sacco and Vanzetti were a rallying cry for anarchists when tensions were highest. They would have capitalized on a powder keg. And we believe that was precisely the case. The bombing sowed confusion and chaos and weakened the perception of the police. Mario Buda was a close ally to Sacco and Vanzetti and knew his way around a stick of dynamite. A close friend would want revenge, and for our money, we believe Mario Buda lashed out in the way he knew would cause the most attention. We think he was the mastermind behind the Wall Street bombing. But what do you think? Who pulled off this attack on the J.P. Morgan building? Was it an organized group, a lone madman, or someone trying to take down the bank in protest? Weigh in on Twitter at Parcast Network or on Facebook.com slash Parcast with your own theories. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts. Tune in Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Kenneth Martin and Samantha Gourash and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Mick Lambeth, Harris Markson, Greg Polson, Sarah Miller-Cruz, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez.